fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Dan, it is so great to be here going back to the 80s again with a, with a movie I just love. I just wish I could remember if I had seen it when it came out. You know, it's. I am not a fan of the '80s in general. I do love their movies, though. Their music, their style. It just wasn't for me. You know, you you know me. I'm the, I'm a '70s guy. Uh, I like the really crazy stuff. But we're gonna get into some of that. But first, we've got to talk to our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, were you a child of the '80s, and where are you broadcasting from this week? I am literally a child of the '80s, so I guess technically yes. Uh, but, you know, today I've stumbled upon an underground cavern near Astoria, Oregon, that seems to contain a centuries-old pirate ship. I love this. I think we should find the treasure map because I think the three of us could have more effectively, efficiently, and safely found One-Eyed Willie's treasure. Uh, but we're going to talk how we would, maybe we'll talk about how we would have improved this journey. But I got to tell you guys, Goonies was such a fun movie. I really loved this movie as a kid. But, you know, I forgot how silly it was. <laughs> it's kind of silly, uh, even though it has Thanos. This is, uh, you know, Josh Brolin's first movie. Uh, but this was kind of a silly movie. Uh, Denon, what did you think about this, having not remembered seeing it in the first place? Well, I, I actually loved it. You know me, Dan. I just watch movies uncritically and enjoy them. Um, and the second or third time watching it, I was like, this is an awesome battle of gadgets. And it's probably one of the few movies where there is foreshadowing using a gadget. Um, the, the Rude Goldberg device outside the house to simply open a gate, which is probably the easiest action you can take, um, foreshadows most of the gadgets that occur in the caves. Um, so I got to bring together my literary understanding of foreshadowing and gadgets and gears. How much better can that be? And I would think, Ben, as an engineer, you would have loved this. Yeah, you know, it was it was very fun to see all these Rube Goldberg ex, ex, uh, machines. You've got to appreciate the effort that goes into having a machine that complex just open a gate. And the fact that uh, he had to then go and reset it again for the next time uh, Chunk was going to come over. Uh, you know, that's a lot of work and a lot of real dedication to his uh, engineering craft. Well, I love that it's an anti-chunk gate. I, I didn't really think of it like that, but I guess in some ways that's really what it is. Uh, but, you know, really quickly, I want to define, you know, we've mentioned Rube Goldberg on the show before. I happen to love that term. But I don't know if, if, if you're listening to this and you're not sure what it is. Uh, ben, I'm going to try something here. Tell me if I get anything wrong. But basically, this is an over-engineered contraption with this that uses utilizes a series of actions to accomplish a simple task like opening a gate you can simply walk down flip a latch and open the gate but instead you have to drop a bowling ball onto a onto a seesaw that hits you know that hits a boot that kicks a chicken in the butt and then it lays an egg and drops it down on the latch and then it opens up that's a Rube Goldberg thing and it's always funny to me how every single Rube Goldberg contraption seems to have a chicken laying an egg, which is, I would almost imagine, Ben, that that would seem like the most likely part of that thing to fail. Well, it would certainly make it so you could only use it about once a day. Uh, 
So that would that would that is a a, a very tough uh, reset limit on the machine. Um, I guess you could also have a whole uh, a whole army of chickens uh, to swap out each time you need to run it. Although I do wonder if scaring a chicken really makes it uh, lay the egg. Well, I was also thinking, Dan, you were overestimating there. Why walk down? I mean, obviously the Rude Goldberg is one extreme, but we are fundamentally not going to have to walk to the gate. A simple string with a pulley to pull the latch up from the front door is really what you need here. You do need a little bit of a mechanism um, because, yeah, who has the time, the energy to walk all the way to the gate? Absolutely. I mean, I would really go with Data's plan, though, and just build zip lines from all the children's houses. That way, all the kids ha- get to have fun riding the zip line rather than just uh, Data. <laughs> I, I love that. Data's great. I want to talk about Data, but it, if, you know, just a quick thing on Rube Goldberg's, I, I do think what you said is very important. These things are hard to engineer and they're impossible to, to reset. And if you're still curious about what these are, I'm going to put a link on the website. There was the, you guys remember the band OK Go? They did that whole uh, treadmill thing. Thing. They may still be around, but their yeah. videos were really cool for a long time. And they did one, uh, they did a, an amazing video with a, it's like a three minute Rube Goldberg contraption. And it's, it's pretty cool. So I'll put a link to that up, but let's talk about data. Uh, ben, this feels like something you would have done as a kid. I couldn't see you really wearing a trench coat, but I could see you having, um, you know, chattering teeth attached to a slinky inside of your coat. Um, did you really identify with him? And did you do any of this stuff as a kid? You know, I, I identified with him a little bit because I definitely remember as a as a as a child thinking that machines like this would be really cool. I remember trying to build Rube Goldberg esque things with like my mar- my marble tracks, the Kinects, the Legos, you know, all these different things. But I never, I I don't think I ever got quite so far as to integrate anything into worn elements hidden under a coat. That's another level of engineering and really also requires harnessing and uh, and sewing skills that I really didn't have uh, until much later in life. Well, I find it interesting, Ben, that, you know, you were thinking and building devices, became an engineer. Dan, what I, I, I basically tried my limited engineering proved to be a total failure when I tried to build a lamp and I did not understand insulation yet. And I stuck two bare wires into a socket. Um, I do not recommend anyone do that. Um, we did not set the house on fire. We didn't blow anything up except the lamp. Um, and I did get a bit of a shock. Um, this definitely moved me in my physics direction. Did you have one of those moments where you put it in there and then your hair just poofed out with a little electricity and then the, the singe across your face? Did anything like that happen? Oh, that would that would have been nice, Dan. But no, we failed that. But the light did. We're not sure if the light blew up or we just got so scared we dropped the light and it shattered at the bottom when it hit the ground. But it was a dramatic moment. I had a brother who, who stuck a butter knife into the wall socket and I think he got blown across the room. I don't think he quite had the singed hair, uh, but I remember that. Thank God he's still alive. But that was definitely both a hilarious and scary moment. And those are fun. Yeah. Well, if we're sharing these stories, once uh, this was in college, we were switching uh, fluorescent tubes from normal to blacklight bulbs for a party. And I definitely grabbed both ends of the tube because it was only like a three foot tube uh, and was touching both metal sides while on while on a ladder and uh, felt the voltage go straight across uh, my heart <laughs> while on a ladder. Did your nose start glowing, or how did that, what, what happened physically? Uh, you know, I, I let go pretty quick and then thought, wow, I almost just uh, 
zapped my heart while six feet in the air and falling backwards off this ladder. <laughs> you just reminded we should probably do an episode on Uncle Fester from the Adams Family. Um, but because <laughs> those are reminding me of that. But l- let's talk about data here because his stuff is great. Uh, I want to talk about, first of all, let's go through these one by one. I know he's got names for them. You're going to have to correct me. We've talked about the zip lines. I like that. Those seem pretty easy to do, although difficult to reset because I imagine you have to be always going. Um, you know, with gravity, can't really go up, um, you know, and Kevin McAllister did this in Home Alone as well. Um, but what about that belt buckle that he uses in a couple different ways to, you know, a suction cup attached to, I don't know, fishing wire or whatever that he uses to grab stuff. Uh, what did you think about that? Well, let me ask you, Denon, how would be the, what are the physics to overcome here? And then Ben, how would you, how would you create that? Well, the, the physics really that we're talking about is the strength of your materials, um, because so much of this is pulling, grappling, holding his weight. Um, there, you know, everything is spring loaded, so that's kind of cool. Um, he, I mean, he does have his flashlights attached to his belt that die pretty quickly, and I'm not sure why the batteries gave out so quickly, because um, batteries and flashlights do last a little longer than that, so there shouldn't have been a problem there. Um, what I like about his choice is everything analog and mechanical. Um, now, size may be a problem. So the other thing, uh, the other physics piece I would say is scale. So basically, the strength of the material, can it really hold you up, and the size and scale, because he's chosen to go this analog spring-loaded way with levers and buttons, reminiscent, of course, of the Jetsons. So if people are interested in button technology, they should go see that episode. Um, but, you know, there's obviously a lot of engineering design as well. So I think uh, Ben really has to clue us in on that piece. Yeah, so... The, the typical uh, material you'd think of when you see super strong thread like this is Kevlar, which is what we make bulletproof vests out of. Kevlar can hold about 14 pounds on it, like a normal diameter thread. So it's certainly possible that the things we see happening could be done with 14 pounds of pulling strength, at least some of them. You know, the, the dolly with the drum, you know, if it had really good bearings, you could maybe pull that around with only 14 pounds of force. Um, you know, if the kids, uh, the soles of his shoes weren't very, uh, were, you know, kind of old and run down and it was a slick dock, you know, I could imagine a, you know, 50, 60 pound kid getting dragged with a 14 pound pull strength thread. Uh, the bigger concern I would have with that is the little suction cuppy thing. You know, you're not going to get that kind of strength out of a tiny little suction cup like that. And, and it'd be very hard to get that kind of strength out of a tiny little motor. So I'm guessing he must have been hiding a much larger motor and there was some gearing going on uh, to, the, uh, to the spool we see inside the belt buckle. Um, and maybe there was some quick dry epoxy or something in the, uh, in the suction cup. I love well you know I love gearing you know I mean it's it's I love, I love the show one of them it's my new favorite words but definitely my favorite word of the episode but don't forget here Ben and I don't want to do any foreshadowing I don't want to get ahead of ourselves but he does have slick shoes so would that aid in his uh, movement that's what I'm saying he has well he has the he could very much have also had you know oil the oil from the slick shoes has leaked into the soles of his shoes and he's slipping around a little bit from that as well you know what? I really like that idea of quick drying glue because it is really hard. You know, your basic suction cup is attempting to create some level of a vacuum and use the air pressure to hold it on, which is just really hard to do. Anyone who has played with little dart guns as a kid know they almost never stick to anything. Um, and part of it, I think, is 
the force they hit the wall with doesn't push the air out sufficiently to really create the suction that you need. And you're always limited by air pressure, um, which actually is quite high. So you could do a lot with that. But I think the quick drying glue of some sort, um, a, a cool epoxy that mixes in the air as it's flying along, sticks and dries, um, might be a way to go here with these suction cups. One of the things that I immediately thought of was a bathroom plunger, right? So the you know the red with the wooden handle pl plastic plungers, those are pretty crappy, no pun intended, when it comes to <laughs> toilet plunging. But there's this, these great plungers that almost look like a bellows. There's one that's like a beehive, and that thing will really clean out your you know clean out your your tubes, your pipes. Does, is there any effect? Could you could you make a suction cup that is small but also very powerful without the need to go to epoxy? Well, the problem with suction cups is that their strength is reliant on there's they're sucking their their holding strength is reliant on the ambient air pressure. So the most they can really do is pull against the atmosphere, which is about 15 pounds of um, or 16, 16 pounds of pressure per square inch. So if you see that little suction cup, it's maybe got a square inch. So all it could. With a perfect vacuum underneath, it could maybe hold 16 pounds, um, but it's not got a perfect vacuum, and it's gonna. It could. It could get close to that 14 pounds of strength of the Kevlar, I suppose, but maybe maybe seven or eight pounds at best. Yeah, and and Dan, as you noticed, the other plungers they're big, so they're able to generate that bigger suction. And it's really the surface area of your little dart that's going to come into play here because it's, it's the pressure. Yeah. So it's the force per area. So you really need a bigger dart to get a bigger sticking force. Yeah, we should also talk a little bit about how plungers work, especially those beehive ones. Um, what you're trying to do there is you have a big volume of air inside of that bellows that you're when you then compress the bellows, that um, greatly increases that air pressure, hopefully enough that it can press through the uh, the trap inside of your toilet that is clogged full of uh, things that are not moving. Or moving too well. <laughs> it's not actually a vacuum in that case uh, that you're trying to do, but you're actually trying to create a very high-pressure event uh, to push through the toilet. <laughs> a high-pressure event is what caused the, the, the blockage, and a high-pressure event is what's going to get that blockage clean, is what you're saying. Uh, I, I think that, you know, that is probably my favorite thing that I've learned on this episode. Well said, Ben. Well said. Uh, now, let's talk about the um, the chattering teeth. You know, as much as I love the... I don't even know what the name of those those dart guns are, but as much as I love that, I do love these, these chattering teeth that are attached to a slinky that save him from getting kind of skewered at the bottom. Obviously, this could not work. I don't even want to pretend that this could possibly work. But how could we create something that would do that at least have those same results? Then let's talk about the physics you have to overcome, and then let's overcome it practically with Ben. Well, I, I, I'm a little concerned, Dan, that you dismissed this so quickly, because we do know that the jaw is one of the strongest <laughs> muscles in the body, right? The clamping strength of the, the human jaw is incredible. So well, you know clearly, it's not a real jaw, right, then? And you know that that is... <laughs> so, but but let's, let's take it that step. Let's suspend disbelief for a moment. Right. If I was to design it visually, um, I wouldn't use the chattering teeth. You're obviously correct there, Dan. I mean, that piece is true. But why not? I love the design idea, right, to connect with one of the strongest clamping forces, you know, in the body and, and make your clamp look like that. Um, so you're right. You, you really need a clamp. And what I think is interesting in this idea, it's fundamentally different than the standard grappling hook, right? Uh, uh, most superheroes, 
use grappling hooks in these situations and hope it will catch on to something latch and then you're just relying on the strength of the metal and the hook to hold you in place. The idea of an actual clamp that is somehow, I, I presume, activated when you know the center of the jaw hits whatever you're doing and then clamps down and can hold on to anything, to me was an intriguing design idea because now you don't have to hook over something. You can just sort of hit almost anything and clamp onto it if you can generate enough force in the clamp. And, you know, I think of my, you know, what is it, vice grip type pliers, which, you know, you, you, you adjust, you adjust, and then you squeeze and they hold onto things in an in incredibly strong way. So I don't know the engineering behind that, but there's, you know, some interesting leverage and torque and force going on that I think the jaw at least is an inspiration for. So why not make it look like teeth when you're done? Well, I will tell you that anyone who's seen Shawshank Redemption knows that at least uh, the threat of, of, of a jaw clamping down on certain body parts is enough to instill fear and keep you safe in a prison. Uh, but Ben, can you utilize that and create one of these things? Well, you can certainly create a clamp that, uh, that grabs and pulls harder uh, under tension because it can actually be potentially very simple to mess this up and make a a jaw that uh, releases when it's pulled on, but you could you can de- you could definitely make that aspect of it uh, work. Uh, th- there's two two things you have to overcome. One is you have to grab a surface that either yields a little bit to allow your jaw to sink in. So you could imagine if you're grabbing onto um, like a really crumbly rock or brick or something like that, there's a good chance that your your strong jaw there is going to break the material and you're not actually going to get any purchase. So you want to be using it on a, a robust material, maybe like a granite or another hard rock that isn't very brittle, something bo- that's both soft, but uh, that's strong, but not brittle so that it won't shatter. Or maybe you're grabbing onto another thing of metal that will um, yield a little bit, but again, not shatter. So again, you, you want to be grabbing something that is yielding and not a brittle material. Uh, beyond that, you're also going to need probably something pretty sharp because you don't want to rely just on frictional forces to um, hold you up in this case. Friction is not, not necessarily bad. You could certainly make friction work for you in this case, but you really ideally want something a little more mechanical where you're really biting into the material with actual sharp teeth to get more of a mechanical grab rather than a purely fictional grab. See, there was the use of teeth again, Dan. Just I'm just pointing that out. No, I agree. And I would think, you know, it's funny because I didn't think about the material that you're biting into as being important, but I guess it really is. You almost have to have a, a bite into anything you know, I don't know if Kevlar teeth or diamond encrusted teeth. I mean, we need a grill is what I'm saying here. We need to go out and get a grill that can bust through all of this stuff and hang on. Uh, so now let's talk about, we know we got, oh, one of the things I wanted to mention about data that I think is important in closing here. We do see one scene where he's got a boxing glove on a spring that he uses to knock out some of the uh, the Fratellis. One of the things I thought that would make data, all of data stuff really more feasible would be miniaturization. I remember the Nethercut Museum, which is a great museum if you're out here in LA, I may have mentioned this before, but they have this great display 
where there's a device from, you know, the 1890s that went into a car, some kind of electrical converter. And it's, you know, it's roughly three feet tall, you know, a foot and a half wide. And it's got all these button knobs and it's, you know, all these vacuum tubes. And then you see what it looks like the 1990 version. And it's, you know, roughly the size of the half of your you know inner hand. Right. So it's shrunk you know, 10,000 points. I think if you're able to do that, some of these things would really be more feasible. But I love that they're all crammed into his jacket. But speaking of cramming everything into a jacket. What about cramming tons of these little gadgets, as you mentioned earlier, Denon, all of these Rube Goldberg contraptions, into a, 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 an a, a service, into a cove, I guess it's a cove that the end the pirate ship lands in. Uh, these pirates, they, you know, they're building all these traps to protect this treasure. Uh, this was a really fun part of the movie that I think we should talk about. Um, Denon, what were some of the things they had to overcome first before they started building all of these traps to protect this gold? Well, I, I have to admit, this was a tricky one for me because it's an interesting process. I think clearly you first kind of walk your way out of the cove and have to survey kind of what are your options because you're, 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 you've, you've got a path to and from presumably the ship that is just a clear normal path. And you have two things to engineer. You have to engineer, I mean, let's take the, the organ slash piano that makes the floor disappear. Right. Presumably to get through there the first time before you build the trap, that's a solid floor. So you have to create the space underneath that's going to be the problem and then build the floor and build the trap that holds it up. Right. And then you have to sort of the great one, which I think it was a rock, but it looked like a bowling ball to me where it rolls around forever and ever on the track before causing everything to fall apart. You have to sort of think about the spatial design of where you're putting your Rude Goldberg devices. So it's an interesting kind of walk through, have a clear path and say, okay, this is the path we're going to have to block up. And a combination of demolition and building. That's what I found fascinating. And so I'm trying to figure out the order in which you might do these. And I'd be real curious, Ben, what order you would kind of design these traps in because there was definitely an order to them. That's an interesting question. The... You'd, you'd certainly want to build, you'd probably want to start with the most dangerous or the least dangerous ones so that you're not having to, uh, you know, traipse through your extremely dangerous traps all the time. Um, I'm curious, for example, with the, uh, with the punji stick that, uh, pit that, uh, data almost falls in, you know, when you're, when you're putting that key and twisting that panel and that holds your arm in and all that stuff is the you know is there another way through that room for example that you know that they hid and therefore you know you don't the pirates didn't actually have to um go through traipse through all these traps uh you know every time they were building them you know maybe there's secret passages that they then filled in afterwards um, kind of like when you build a dam, how you have a diversion channel, and that's where like the river goes. That's where the water. That's where they, the water, are going while they build their magnum opus of traps. Interesting. So one question I would have, I, I, I actually have this question for you, Dan, as the analytical mastermind. Right. It occurred to me in watching this that the 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 hand clamping trap, which then leads to the pit opening, if I have this right seemed to be the only one that they survived simply because they were lucky to have the chattering teeth we just discussed. The others all seem to have ways that in principle you could solve or avoid, right? Even the falling rocks, there was sort of a way out of it. Um, 
as the analytical mastermind, how did you feel about these traps as puzzles versus traps? If I could put you on the spot, maybe. No, I think it's great because this is a perfect opening into what I wanted to talk about, which is the comparisons to Oak Island. Um, you know, it's like, where's Waldo every episode? Where am I going to put in my shameless plug for fascinating nouns? Well, here it is. I did an episode on Oak Island, which is, uh, I talked to a couple of guys that are on this great TV show called The Curse of Oak Island. And Oak Island is basically an island in Nova Scotia where they were they, you know, eight, I think it's in the 1890s, they found this little mound uh, that looked like it probably had treasure in it. They had like a block and tackle on the top. They dug and they found these strange little two by fours and they kept digging. And the long story short is to this day, they haven't found what's at the bottom of that hole because the entire island seems to be booby trapped. Once you dig past a certain level, everything becomes flooded. And they believe that there's a system of flood tunnels that people put in there to stop uh, stop people trying to get this treasure. So to answer your question, Denon, I think it's important to know what is the purpose of these traps. There, there's clearly, even though so many people have looked for this treasure, there is clearly a way to turn off the traps and simply walk in and grab your treasure. And I believe the pit that you're talking about, I'm guessing the people who built those traps and had intended to come back for it would know a way to get around it. And in some ways, that trap may have been designed to kill anyone who got that far and that there isn't. It's not like an escape room where there is a correct answer. They were meaning to kill anyone who got to that level. That is my, that's my guess uh, on that. Yeah, no, it's an interesting thing because other than that trap, one feeling I had about this, because we have this mystery of why are they all on the ship dead, right? I do. And and I kind of had the feeling that this was, a, well, we're not going to be able to get the treasure. We're not going to be able to enjoy it. So we're going to build a test. And only the worthy who get through will then get to use our treasure later in life. And there's always the question, well, you know, how did that one piece, uh, you know, that you use to turn the knobby and get your hand trapped, and how did the map get out? I feel it was sent out on purpose to find that worthy person. But then there is that one trap with the stakes. I'm like, okay, there seems to be no way around that. But they got around it, so they were clearly the worthy people. I don't know. I was just I was very mystified by this, and I started going down a very deep hole with this. Like, if you were engineering that, Ben, the spiky trap, can you see a way to engineer it where – if you did something extra smart, you could survive it. Well, I feel like they did do that. We see everyone but Data didn't fall because they like got off the trap door. So I think in that case, it's simply knowing there's a trap door there and knowing to step aside so that when the door opens for you, you don't fall. And then maybe there's a rope or something that you use. I mean, clearly they went through that hole eventually. So somehow they all went through without, you know, falling onto the punji sticks. So there is a way um, in that sense. Well, I believe that they climbed. I, th I think they climbed down, though, didn't they? They must have, yeah. Well, so you had to bring other stuff in. You, there wasn't a natural order. There wasn't a, a smart way to figure out the trap that Denon's suggesting that you could figure it out and then get down without having to re-engineer or to bring in your own equipment. Well, I, I, I kind of disagree with that because everybody but Data realized there was a trap door there. So, you know, leave it to the engineer too busy to staring at the machinery to look at the ground below him. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ben, because now I realized I should have realized this sooner. Um, you know, they were so used to the Rude Goldberg device they built in their yard to open the door. 
I think everybody else, as soon as they saw everything happening, like you said, knew a trapdoor would be opening. And so your awareness of Rude Goldberg devices was the secret to solving this. Get out of the way, stand on the edge, not fall in the pit. And then, as Dan, you said, use the time later to carefully climb down safely. Um, I f- I'm feeling much better. I now feel like I understand it was the device they built in their yard at the beginning that taught them the lessons they needed to get through this trap. Well, I got to tell you, I, I just want to really quickly take issue with your with your uh, hypothesis of the reason behind Goonies, because what you're suggesting sounds like a demented Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Another Willy there. I don't know if there's any connection, uh, but I don't know that they wanted this golden ticket, a.k.a. the medallion to get out so someone worthy could find it. I think they built the traps to protect themselves in case the British who were coming after them ever stumbled into their cave and then they would, you know, crush them to death like uh, uh, not cobble but, you know, Copperfield or whatever the other guy's name is. Uh, but then I, I think they wanted to have the gold and spread it. There was an argument amongst who share was who, and they ended up killing each other. So none of them could enjoy it. And therefore, someone would end up almost dying coming in and, and getting this treasure out. And that's how it turned into this almost accidentally. That's my view on the narrative behind this. Uh, but who knows? We're never going to know because One-Eyed Willie uh, kept his secrets. I think, though, that there was a part of the story that one member of the crew didn't like the plan and he stole the map and the and the medallion and such and and fi- mm. found a way out and that's how they the, all those materials came into the hands of the historical society um, slash the goonies yeah i i i just think i don't know dan i like your idea too but i really feel like it's bizarre to build these traps and be on the inside of it where you're not going to get any more food and then all fight each other. Like if you're going to divide up the treasure, just leave. Why do you need traps? So I think I I'm, I'm sticking by, I'm sticking by my theory that they were building traps for the worthy. It might've been the first panic room. That's what I'm going to say. Maybe it was their, their first panic room. Oh, okay. Uh, I like I that. Think that makes more sense. I think they were just waiting it out and eventually their madness got the best of them. Maybe they had a way to spy out and see that the fleet attacking them was still there. And, Eventually, they just starve to death waiting for the fleet to leave. Uh, I think it's so along the lines. You know, the cynical route always gets, that's the, to me, that's the Occam's razor. But then, and I do love your uplifting story about uh, one-eyed Willy Wonka. Uh, but th- we've arrived at our errors, additions, and omissions section. Things we wanted to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Uh, then, did you have anything that we missed on the Goonies? I, I do have one that I just have to go with. Um, the organ slash piano being played at the end. Um, I didn't really notice it until watching it again, and and it stuck with me. The final chord, um, as she's trying to play it, she goes, I just can't tell if that note is an A sharp or a B flat. And I sat there going, (laughs) that's the same key on the piano. Like, in my head, I had to check with my kid. I'm like, isn't that the same key on the piano? And she's like, yes. And you could clearly see in the music there was a sharp. (laughs) Um, so I don't know how that happens. Um, anyway, this is what, um, I really found, uh, shocking also, but I did relate very much to the idea of, um, the fact that she couldn't find middle C at first. Cause I remember learning to play the piano and it was only cause middle C was over, um, a particular letter. We had a Baldwin piano and the middle C was right under, I don't know, like the A in Baldwin. So I could find it. So that whole piano organ thing, 
um, I really liked. Well, it's also probably difficult to find middle C on a handmade you know, organ crafted out of human skeletons. So, yeah, you got to cut her a little bit of slack, I guess, for that. Exactly. Um, but the dead, I'm sorry, Ben, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Well, first, I got to say, it's amazing that thing was still in tune after hundreds of years, you know. But uh, beyond that, the, uh, you know, there were kind of two things, both relate to the ship. One, when we see the ship, you know, sailing out at the end, I, I had to first wonder, like, could the ship even, would the ship even still float after hundreds of years still in salt water like that? Um, you know, most of these boats, uh, you know, constantly had to have their timbers repaired and replaced. You know, it seems kind of unlikely to me that it would have uh, still been floating at that point. Um, but, you know, may- maybe it's possible. Um, the other thing that really got me down a fun uh, history hole was they mentioned that it was the British king and the British fleet that were attacking uh, One-Eyed Willie. And that got me into a fun little bit of history about was there ever a British uh, fleet in Oregon? And there was during the 1800s, during the War of 1812, uh, the British fleet sailed up to um, Oregon to actually, um, and they actually stole Fort Astoria, in uh in Astoria, Oregon. So it's kind of true. Um, but if if we go by the 1600s uh era one-eyed Willie, it, it probably should have been the Spanish, which is why everything was in Spanish. Well, I think they were Spanish. I think I was reading up that the the one-eyed Willie I think was Spanish. So I think it would be, you know, a different name. Yeah, but the British had a, the only British Brits that came around uh the, uh the Straits of Magellan at that point were like Sir Francis Drake during that era era. And uh, he was a uh, he was a pirate at the time, not a uh, he didn't have his letter of mark from the uh, British uh, queen yet at that point. And it was a queen, too, not a king. Right. No, I think that that's great. But I do love that you found Astoria in the, in the history books and that led a little bit of creed to this. It, it's fat. The history is really interesting that there was actually British. Uh, there were a lot of British uh, intrigue and battle uh, between British Columbia uh, you know, that's why it's British Columbia up there in Canada and uh, the uh, Americans uh, during the early 1800s. I love it. I think we should go and check all the caves out there to make sure that the veracity of the story is, is, is if it's intact and that we can maybe find this thing. Um, I had a couple things from this I want to talk about really quickly. Um, Denon, I, I think you have to have seen when they were in that opening sequence, when they're rummaging through the dad's old historical artifacts. I don't know why they're in an attic, but the way that they were handling those artifacts almost makes the Scooby gang look like professional restorers. I mean, they're <laughs> kicking them, dropping them. I mean, just an absolute disgrace. Uh, the mouth note, you know, you mentioned the, the English on the map. It, it, it should be old English, I would imagine, or old Spanish, I should say. I, I don't know that he, it's quite the same trend. Translation, just like old English is very difficult to understand. Um, one of the things, there's two other things. When uh, when when the older brother Brand, when he goes out to ride his bike, and they've just simply opened up the top of the tires, that's not going to let the air out of the tires. There's a little <laughs> you have to push the little metal thing down. As anyone who knows, that affected my life. I actually thought you could take the top off and an air would come out of your tires, uh, and I was scared to ever lose those things with my bike. And then finally, there's a car scene where Brand's driving that little <laughs> the kid's little bike, and you know the uh, the bully or whatever grabs his arm and then just starts going like 60, 80 miles an hour, and then launch 
launches him off the side of a cliff. It's amazing you can get away with that now. There's also a similar scene in Karate Kid. I don't know how either one of those people survived that crash. I mean, that would be I mean, almost you know attempted homicide at that point. Uh, vehicular attempted vehicular homicide. Uh, those things always disturb me. Um, but if you if we've missed anything, I have to interrupt you. I expected you to catch this. That's why I didn't put it in my errors. What I miss the reference to the gremlins in the phone call when when um, Chunk is trapped and he's calling the police and the police isn't believing him. He goes, is this like your story of furry things that grow when you feed them or get them wet or turn evil when you get them wet? There is a clear gremlins reference from the police that I had to check and gremlins had come out before this. And I was like, we've done gremlins. Gremlins is like Dan's thing. I expected it. Wow. I do remember that. Uh, I didn't think to mention it. That is funny because I think it's a very similar police station as well. Uh, that's a great one. That's a great one, Dan. <laughs> um, but if we've missed anything else, I think that probably covers it. But in case we've missed anything else, of course, you can get in touch with the show. We are on Twitter at FGGBTPod or on Facebook at FGGBT. But you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name. It's at Den and Michael. And then find me on Facebook at Prof Den and Michael. You just stick Prof in there. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B S I E P S E R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram uh, at the Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. And we now record this show on YouTube. You can find it on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. Like, subscribe, comment. We are all there. So if you stumble across a treasure map that has the potential to save your family's livelihood and your childhood home, you want to be careful because that treasure map could lead you down into a pit filled with traps and all kinds of dangerous artifacts. So you want to be careful and maybe don't bring your friends. And if you do, only bring the friends who are smart and can get you out of puzzles because it can be very dangerous down there. You want to make sure that you emerge a superhero and not die like a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like this show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, F triple gbt.com that's f triple gbt.com where you will find links to everything you're looking for all the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page links to our social media are right there and if you go to the top of the page you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety. You can find the links that we talked about, the in real life examples that we brought to you, including videos. And of course, we've got each episode has its own YouTube video. You can watch it there if you prefer. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.